Hello listeners, welcome back to another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. Today we are going to talk about the business model of delivering beyond happiness. Let me set the context to today's podcast. We have in the past called on several experts right from people who have been creating opinion polls on people's happiness, people in the HR and employee engagement field. We have called a monk and spiritual guru. We've called authors from mythology who have discussed different aspects and issues of how people can feel happiness. Today, we have called in a panel of experts who have been working on delivering happiness. Happiness per se can be delivered through various business models. It could be spiritual gurus through spirituality. It could be through technology. It could be through various interventions in psychology and on the workplace and by the government. So to discuss and bear it open with you, I have called in Jen Lim, who is the CEO of Delivering Happiness and her India partner, Karan Behel. Let me quickly walk you through their profile and what they have been doing in this space. Jen Lim is the founder and bestseller author of Beyond Happiness and the CEO of Delivering Happiness, a company she and Tony Hesh, the late CEO of Zappos, co-founded to create happier company cultures for a more profitable and sustainable approach to business. Delivering Happiness started as a book which sold 1 million copies worldwide and evolved into business consultancy and global movement that has impacted and inspired hundreds of companies and organizations worldwide. In her best-selling book, Beyond Happiness, Jen draws on her decades of experience in culture strategy to translate it into a practical how-to framework for more sustainable workplace and modern organization design. She guides all of us, no matter our title or role, how to live more meaningful lives through the work we do every day. In 2017, Jen was selected to be on the Global Happiness Council of Work and Wellbeing, and in 2020, Delivering Happiness was placed on the Inc. 5000 list, becoming one of the fastest growing private company in the US. Jen helped create the world's first series of culture book at Zappos.com and has featured in way various TV channels discussing about it. In the past, Jen has worked with several organizations in the US and around the world, including some governments. Let me also introduce Karan, who is their India partner. Karan is the founder and chief happiness officer of Happitude, Asia's leading workplace happiness and well-being company. At the age of 26, he quit his corporate job and started his own business. This made him travel around 21 countries and work with people from various walks of life, culture and tradition. But very soon, he discovered the success was not guarantee of happiness. He could see people silently going through this ordeal. This made him question the idea behind success leads to happiness. With this curiosity, Karan embarked on the journey to figure out what comes first, success or happiness. His intrigue took him to deeper down path of experiencing and dexterity to point where he plunged himself into pool of experiential journeys from spiritual masters to science of happiness, leading researchers in the University of California. It was a quest that transformed Karan's life. Today as a specialist, Karan Karan has been working with top leaders and he has framed among the top global happiness and thought leaders community. He has been a speaker at happiness and mindful conferences around the world 
and he has worked with more than 50,000 people, 150 companies from 35 countries. Karan has featured on several channels like BBC, Z Business, The Week magazine, Indian Express, The Hindu and many others. So Karan and Jen, welcome to Quote Unquote with KK. Firstly, let me start by decoding the whole process of delivering happiness. How would you define your product? Who are your stakeholders and organizations? What are the key determinants there? And how does these uh, determinants change with age, culture, stage, timing of crisis, leadership, <laughs> etc.? And one of the key challenges that we have found is measurement of happiness. And how do you propose to measure happiness? And how accurate are these social media models that use this listening tools using AI ML to measure emotions and happiness and report it? So I would love to get your both point of view and then let's dive deeper. Sounds good. That's a lot of questions in one <laughs> to start off with. It's definitely a nice size, chunky question, but I'll try to take it one topic at a time. And Karam, I'd love to hear your input as well, of course. Started off the top, I think the first question was about delivering happiness. So what is it that we do? So essentially, we're a company that was born out of a book by the same name, Delivering Happiness, that was published in 2010. So Tony Shea, the, uh, the late CEO of Zappos.com, and I launched that and just thought it was going to be a book, but decided to turn it into a company because there was, lo and behold, a demand for happiness in the world, specifically happiness in the workplace. So what we wanted to do is take the lessons learned from Zappos, but really wanted to create products and services that are more universal. So at Back in the day in 2010, people would say, oh yeah, that sounds great, but it would never work in our workplace or it would never work in this part of the world. And I fundamentally did not believe that. I had a belief that because it was scientific, because it's data-driven, and because happiness is universal, that we could develop frameworks, essentially, and models to be able to be used across all the world universally and across all industry and no matter what size of the company and governments and hospitals, as you kind of mentioned. So that's what we've been doing for 11 plus years now is helping organizations around the world implement these scientific levers of happiness so that they could see the end result and the outcomes of not just happier employees, but actually happier customers and therefore a more sustainable and profitable business. At the same time, what we're creating is more meaningful lives, more purposeful lives across every level of the ecosystem. So that's what we've been doing is delivering happiness from a service model. And I love the book, which has been the inspiration to start your organization and your venture. So I wish you all the best. Karan, would you like to add to your journey on happiness and how you have been collaborating and working on with Jen? Well, in 2012, I got into this journey of helping people coming happier, starting with the kids, you know, that time without knowing anything about delivering happiness. Now, 2016, when I came to know about delivering happiness, that was like a, a wow factor for me because I didn't know that there's whole organization working on this principle and we were just experimenting and doing our stuff with a few other partners. So I thought, you know, I just want to get in touch with them and I want to work with them somehow. So I didn't know how. So the easiest way you can find is go on the LinkedIn or Twitter and just write to the people. So I started writing to Tony. I knew that Tony is not directly involved in the business. He's not day-to-day -day working. He was more active in the Zappos and not in the delivering happiness. But then I actually got to hear from, from, from one of his, uh, his team member. 
they connected me to jen so i had a late night call with jen i i think that was one call and i said we want to bring you to india and we want to learn from you and we we also want to do the similar work so she agreed and she was so great she's always been a very graceful person and she agreed and we got our first uh, workplace happiness boot camp in india in 2017 and then 18 and then 19 we continued that i think because of last two years because of the covid we could not do it but you know we get to learn so much from them and the interesting part is the kind of models and the frameworks and everything that they have built as jen said it's since happiness it's a global thing because at the end you know no matter how we look how we feel what we do in the outside world deep inside we all are, have that common desire to be happy that's why the, this models are very global if it works in us it works in india if it works in india it will work in china it works everywhere you know with the same level of efficacy and we have worked with about 150 organization in india in last about 4 to 4 4 and 1/2 years i can tell you happiness is something that that i build little bit on the second part of your question you asking about the how these tools of the you know social media they're using to measure emotions and everything see the biggest problem with the whole approach is they think they are measuring happiness but they are just measuring emotions now emotions right. are very it's fluctuating right now i'm feeling great maybe next moment i'm not feeling that good so when are you you know asking me about my emotions end of the day during the day or you know on my weekend on the weekdays so mm-hmm. when they th- think about happiness they are just thinking about emotion they but when they talk about happiness it's a way bigger concept than just emotion so i would prefer that jen build on happiness first before i say my opinion because when she's there she's the right person to talk about it first <laughs> right uh, but i love what you shared grand so good to to hear everything that's happened since we first that first phone call so many years ago it's awesome to hear how much progress you've made and impact you've made so thank you for sharing that um yeah i i mean i if there was not a science to it if it wasn't measurable i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing i think I think the biggest sort of impetus and why I became so passionate about it was because because there has been a lot of data and research behind it and with the science in the last couple decades of different studies from different scientists around the world it really came back to the same fundamental things or levers that we call that actually increase sustainable happiness so meaningful happiness not rainbows and unicorns or party on the weekend type of happiness very extrinsic happiness is on the outside but inside internal happiness is what we're focused on based on the metrics so the levers that go you know all these studies really point to are pretty simple and it goes to a sense of autonomy or control a sense of progress a sense of connectedness so meaningful connections and ultimately a sense of higher purpose you know what are we doing in the world that's bigger than ourselves what are companies doing in the world that's bigger than making money so knowing that these levers are consistent across the world of course any company whether it's in india or in china or here in the us they can interpret it in their own way but they're general enough to be interpreted so that is specific and custom to their own environment and that's where we start with the measurements because we're able to define the criteria of what creates actual sustainable happiness and actually measure those components then we can actually compare and sometimes correlate to what matters to the business like retention or attracting the right people or productivity and engagement of course and ultimately profits so that's the large i guess overarching way we've been doing in measuring happiness the key there is what i've learned throughout these years is that it seems that it can be subjective but because you benchmark it 
and you're putting a drawing a line in the sand because what someone can say, you know, rate like, you know, how much progress are you making on a day-to-day basis? What one person says in India, like a nine, or what one person says in China, like a six, yes, they're very different. And that's where the context comes in and the benchmarks are so important because in measurement, what's more important is the variance, the delta between that original snapshot in time and how much has changed up or down since then to the next time you take another snapshot. It's what I've learned over time. It's more longitudinal than at a certain point in time. And there's this whole, the longest happiness survey from Harvard, which is going on for almost 75 years or more. And that talks about the, the key success factor for happiness in their cohort, whoever are alive, is relationship mm-hmm. and healthy relationships, as I understand from that study. Uh, but in when I have read your initial book with Tony and certain videos, you've talked about holocracy. Mm-hmm. What is holocracy? This is a new term that some of our listeners may not even be aware of. We know there there is one end of autocracy mm-hmm. and the other end is democracy in, in our country. So where is holocracy and what is holocracy? I wish if you could define that for us as well. Sure. So just to be super clear, holacracy is something that Zappos adopted over the years, and but it's not something that Delivering Happiness, the company that has adopted per se, because holacracy is actually one specific type of self-management and self-organization of organizational design, essentially. Not very sexy or, you know, in in that sense, but basically one way to implement this whole idea. If you have more self-managed, self-organized type of organization, then you'll have more ability to adapt, innovate, make quicker decisions, have a more equanimity across the organization because one fallacy that people always think with holacracy in this type of organization is that there is no hierarchy at all, which is not true. There actually is still hierarchy, but it's organized in a way that it's more dynamic and flexible to the changes, whether inside the organization or outside the organization. So that's, again, just one specific type of self-management is holacracy, but something that Delivering Happiness hasn't really adopted 100%. We wanted to take what we believe to be workable and adaptable to all organizations, but Holacracy wasn't one of them for us. But then again, there's other organizations around the world that do believe in self-management, do believe in self-organization, and have their own sort of hybrid version of what self-management or holacracy can mean. Hey, Karan, I want you to step in. We have problems with our own democracy. So self-management and holacracy, do you think it's going to be successful in Indian corporates or people who are going to be adopting this management style or culture in their organization? See, I think it's a very fancy idea for most of the organization. I'll tell you why. In that, when we talk about self-management, we are assuming that self is very much aware and conscious of, you know, how he or she needs to be. But most of the time, there are people, you know, and, and it's the biggest problem with the self-management system is, you know, like the virus enters your body. It's not my duty. Like COVID entered, who's going to deal with it? Nobody's trained to do that, right? Everybody's trained to do things they are supposed to do. So in a situation, uncertainties, it becomes even more difficult to deal with because the people are not fully developed. And they are people who always want somebody to tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. But in a, in a holacracy or a system like this, I'm supposed to take my own decisions, make my own cause. If I wanted to do that, I would have started my own business. Why am I in a job? I'm in a job because I don't know what to do with my life. You're a leader. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. So these 
fancy ideas work for smaller organizations and smaller teams in a very good way. I'm sure it must have worked with bigger organizations like Zappos is one very good example. But in my opinion, in a country like India, this is a very, very difficult thing to even try, I, I can say. Because here we are, we, we, we have a culture wherein we come from a culture of gods. We have God. We want that person to be someone which I can look up to, who can inspire me who can tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? Uh, so I feel this is why, in my opinion, this may not be a successful idea in Indian context. You know, I agree with both of you. Culturally, India comes from a guru-shishya kind of a culture, guru and disciple. Mm. And if I were to implement this, I'm an investor into healthcare sector. And if I were to implement this sort of a culture, I do not know what will happen to my patients or consumers. If I don't follow protocols, if I don't follow all this, I would end up with very poor healthcare outcomes for my patient. So I guess this could be said that holocracy could be implemented in certain type of sectors or certain type of organizations and it could not be widely you know, accepted. Do you agree to this so that we can, can move I, this can I, to can I, another I, subject I, which is far more important to us? I beg to differ here. I tell you why because I feel if it's workable in one area, it will be workable in other area. If it's workable in one sector, it will be workable in other sector i tell you why because this is all about that about human beings this is about human beings if this set of human beings can do it others can do it as well now the thing is that if we are talking about a system like wherein a self-management system which is designed in a way that it can just detect its own challenges and solve it we need a very highly evolved and very self-driven people into the system then it does not matter which industry it is in it, it can be successful yeah i mean i think i think that's generally right i mean i think i think it's being construed as so extreme like there's only one version of it and that's what it is and that's why i don't believe in holacracy per se that is actually applicable across all i just don't believe that because i think every organization every culture every team has their own dynamics and to just enforce something like as something as structured as holacracy is is assuming a lot to your point, Karan, I do believe I agree with you there. I think the one thing to remember with something like self-management and self-organization, it all sounds good. And a lot of people, well, maybe not to people in, in India or something, but if you think about the principles of it, it's really empowering people to make their own decisions, follow their own strengths, follow their own path of where they want to be because be, because they know that's where they want to excel and therefore provide value. But one thing to remember is that even though it sounds like there's no management, there's actually a lot of rigor involved to make it work. There needs to be a communicated, well-communicated structure to be to enable people to have that sense of autonomy, have that sense of control, freedom to make their own decisions. But they have to be balanced in a way that, yes, if you want autonomy, you have to be accountable too, because it's not going to work otherwise. So these two things on the opposite ends of the scale, I think those are the ways that can actually make something like this work and not to be too extreme about it one way or the other. Last point here, one, what Jen just now mentioned, you know, she used the word accountability and without accountability, this cannot function. So I always say a statement that in Spider-Man, they say that big powers come big responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I say, no, actually it's the other way around. It's true. With big responsibilities come big power. People who take who bigger responsibility, they get more power from everyone around them. In organization, if you see somebody who's going a little bit ahead, a little bit 
bit stretching himself or herself out of his or her own comfort zone, his own scope of work. So he get more responsibilities and he he's taking more responsibilities. He get more power in the organization. So if you are a boss, you want to promote somebody, you will take the person who's going little beyond and taking more responsibility than he or she is supposed to do. So I think without responsibility or bigger, without taking accountability of your work, this is something that, that definitely cannot work. So I very much agree with Jen. Let's move on. I want to bring the topic of Beyond Happiness, the book that I'm holding here. Very inspiring for me. I wish this could have been two years earlier before the pandemic so that the world could have realized a lot many leaders would have realized how to go about their business or running their organizations but better late than never. Jen, I want to begin by you and you have also shared the whole playbook also for people to use after having read the book. I'm very inspired and I must congratulate. It's a well thought thesis that you have put forward and a very workable one. Uh, Jen, I want to bring one commonality. You worked with KPMG. I also worked with KPMG. Uh And if you remember, uh, one of the change management models that we used was Berkeley-Twin, starting from vision strategy down to individual performance. And we had, I think, three or four layers of change and how that percolates to the last person as part of the whole change management. If you remember those three boxes, like those triangles at three different levels, strategy, then organization, then manager, leader, and then the individual. I seem to echo a lot of what you have written right from vision strategy going down to the individuals and how this can lead to a very transformational change and happiness across the board. Could you very briefly outline your book? And and you have said this has taken years, so I'm sure this is a lot of thought that has gone in doing it. Would you help us for our audience what this whole book is about? and I'm going to put the link also of the book on Amazon. If those who want to purchase it are free to do that. Could you outline your thought process of how you put this whole book together as a lot of material and then how you're also actually engaging with the readers beyond the book, uh, which I find is another delight for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying those kind words. And you have a miraculous memory for (laughs) remembering all those things from KPMG. Uh, You're really jogging mine right now in uh, trying to recall those things that uh, seem to be on top of your head. But thank you for the kind words. It's actually funny slash ironic that you said that the you wish the book came out earlier, but if you can imagine, so the contract for the book was signed February of 2020, and it was based on an outline that was just really nice, tidy, you know, everything was just so ready to go, ready to be written. And then, of course, the world got 2020. And Correct. every time we had some he- new headline, you can imagine I was working on the book, writing the book based on this outline that just didn't even seem as relevant anymore. Like a lot of it was still pertinent in the context of what I was describing of what we've done at Delivering Happiness, the clients and the stats and the stories that I wanted to share. But the context just got blown up. The world just got so much bigger and smaller at the same time. So I'm kind of laughing at what you said it should have come out earlier because I was literally almost rewriting the book every time, whether the pandemic, global recession, social unrest, and then ultimately... And I know this happened to everyone around the world, but everyone had a sense of loss. And it just didn't have to be a sense of loss of a human being due to health reasons or COVID, but a loss of a job or a loss of a relationship or loss of hope, you know, or loss of expectation. And there's a deep sense of loss that I think a lot of people are still in, in some ways, they're trying to process it. 
in some sort of grief. And for me, losing my co-founder, Tony, was at the very end of the year. So you can imagine, and it was five weeks before the book was due. So you can imagine how I was just really trying to process this from a, a much bigger spectrum of where life is now. And it happened to be around organizational change, happiness, scientific happiness, but also the bigger elements that were all being presented, not just as leaders of whether a CEO, but leaders of our lives and leaders of our work life, because they're so much more integrated now that we've experienced it and everything was catalyzed. The future of work is here now, as we all know. All these things that we're talking about, remote work and you know AI technology, VR, it's just, it just got catalyzed and put in front of our face today. So and that was the context that I was really trying to get these words in the paper of, and this is the biggest thing about the book, is to show how. It's been a huge belief of ours at DH that we can talk about happiness and and philosophize about it and conceptualize it till kingdom come. But if you don't really make it practical and tactical and also show how you test it in your life, in your organization, in your teams, then for what purpose really does it serve? So I really wanted to frame it and frame the book in a way that shows very practically in these frameworks on how to actually do it and implement it within your own team, within your own company, organization, what it might be. And I really wanted to make it people driven. So even though I have a framework in the front, which is called the greenhouse model, which contains all these elements of how to make it work, I frame it through the lens of people. And actually, now that you bring up the KPMG example, it's pretty much the exact opposite of what we were taught there from a methodology perspective, because my belief system comes from starting with the individual. So if you can imagine, imagine concentric circles, one of our major frameworks is me in the middle, we, which is our teams and company, and the community, which is our customers, partners, and vendors, anyone in our ecosystem, and now even closer to us, our society and the planet. So reversing like where we came from from the KPMG standpoint, I believe it really starts from the individual. Because if we actually consider the investment we're making, if we consider them expenses, that's one thing. That's the model that, you know, if you believe in that, you shouldn't read the book. If you believe that people are assets, that's how the book is framed and written in the sense that you start with the individual, the me, and it ripples out to the we and the community. But that's, I think, in short, the biggest thing, what I wanted to capture is the how. And I really appreciate the how part because if you see, we have had a lot of people who just talk and talk, mm -hmm. but there's no impact. And the last thing on your book cover is for growth and impact. And what we are seeing is that methodology, how to reach from point A to point B. So it's great piece of work and I congratulate you and give you and pray for all the positive strength and energy for you to drive this happiness agenda across the world and across organizations and companies and with your partners like Karan back in India and would love to invite you to India as well to see how we can collaborate in areas that we are working and investing as well. I would love that. Thank you so much for the kudos and the, and the, and the very kind words. But I mean, this is the point of why we do what we do. And I'm guessing we're in very similar ways with Karan's been focused and working on for so long. It's just 
having seen the results, having experienced these shifts in, in people's lives, not just, again, even though we ideally work with sea levels to create that change, but seeing it at every level, when you have that aha moment of a leader, of a CEO that realizes, oh, wait, I'm not just checking off a box of culture or checking off a box of how to take care of my people. They realize that change has to start with them, them first. And then seeing that ripple all the way to the frontliner barista at a Starbucks, that I think is has been so so inspiring about what the impact can be, especially at this time of day or this in our age right now of being two years post-COVID and everyone really digging deep and trying to understand, wait, why am I here again? What am I doing this for? Am I really spending these moments of my day most meaningfully, prioritized in the right way and grounded in who I am and what I believe in for from myself and the people I love? So I think the whole conversation has changed around the world. Exactly. And I, I hope the things that I, I try to share in my book brings it, brings it to light in a way that it's not daunting. It's actually very, in some ways, can be simple. It's not necessarily easy <laughs> to do, otherwise everyone would be doing it, but it gets back into the simple needs of who we are as human beings and how we want to spend our time. Jen, I want to take two practical situations in the current context in the world, one in corporate America and one in political America. So I want to take up the subject of Twitter, the mm -hmm. most unhappiest CEO, the most unhappiest leadership and the most unhappiest board. And me sitting in India, one of the most unhappiest that I actually deleted my Twitter handle and I moved to Indian microblogging site called Koo. So, and a very controversial leadership back in India in those days, which led mm. us to delete our accounts. If you were called in today by Mr. Billionaire Tesla, and whatever he is now, he wants to call Mr. Twitter or whatever and turn around this situation and make everyone happy. How mm. do you go about doing it? That is such a hot topic <laughs> just because things are changing minute by minute with that situation. Uh, I think I just heard that he might be CEO for a while. Yeah. So then there's that. What uncertainty around the, the billions that he is spending. Such a heartburn for a, an individual who spends so much to ensure that what he promises he delivers on yeah. the platform. Yeah. So that what's tricky about that is because a lot about what happiness means to a company and to a culture is so based on the values and its higher purpose. So we have to ask if let's just say he becomes CEO and being the kind of leader he is, he'll probably want to, you know, seeing how, what he's done with Tesla and SpaceX and all that, it's pretty much he's running the show. And so what you have to ask about that is what kind of people, if they want to be happy, would want to be a part of that show knowing he's running it? It's kind of like Apple. Would you say that everyone at Apple was happy or is happy now? I wouldn't necessarily say yes, uh, even when Steve Jobs was still CEO. But did they feel like they were doing meaningful work? Did they feel like they were a part of a company they wanted to be you know, proud to be a part of? Those are different questions, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're happy about it. But it did fulfill some parts of their life in some way. So 
I would, you know, if I was just to predict what's going to happen with Twitter, it's not really, I guess, in the sort of ethos or environment that's set up for happiness, unless Elon wakes up sometime, somehow and has this big epiphany that his goal in life is not to do all these things he's doing with all these different projects and go off on Twitter once in a while and get off on Bill Gates once in a while, but it's actually to make people happy. If that miraculously somehow happens, that'd be amazing. But something tells me that's not part of his DNA or his priority right now. And who's to say he's not happy? Maybe he is. And maybe part, you know, some people part of the team. I also heard that he might bring Jack Dorsey in as part of the team. So, and I know some folks that created Twitter back in the day, like Evan. And so they they were happy in their own realm, but it wasn't necessarily for the greater good of everyone's individual happiness per se, but it was, you know, well-intentioned to create a product, create a technology that can impact people in an unprecedented way. So that's a form of happiness, but I really, like I said, I'm doubtful that that's where they would want to go. So you would need somebody like Tony to come in as CEO of Twitter rather than <laughs> Mr. Musk stepping in as the CEO of Twitter and then cleaning the muck. <laughs> well, CEO, like the companies out there right now that maybe not use the word happiness, but believe in culture, believe in their people, as well as believing in profits. Like, you know, Airbnb has been doing a pretty decent job of that over the years of prioritizing people in a way, even during the pandemic, even when they were having to lay off people, doing it with dignity and doing it with empathy. You know, those are the kind of leaders I think can fill in this happiness quotient in the way that they perceive happiness to be. So there's a lot of other leaders out there like that, but I think they really need to kind of have that self-reflection and realize that whatever they are doing is not just for themselves, but realizing what that impact is, not just within the organization, but outside of it too, in society and obviously our planet. Well put, I want to now talk about the political America. Mm, another hot topic. <laughs> yes. When I was doing my podcast with the chairman of Gallup, he announced the first presidential rating of Trump and he said that it was a 10 point dip. But mm -hmm. currently, if you see the current president Biden's rating, that's even lower than what it was for Trump two years back, just around the beginning of the pandemic. And if you were called in, I know you have worked with various governments, both current and you have worked with various governments to actually create happiness ministries and a citizen charter for happiness. How would you advise White House to allay all this anger and unhappiness with the White House and the leadership at White House and what's happening in the world today? <laughs> what a lovely question. I think there's obviously we know there's a big difference between for-profit, non-profit, private sector, public sector. And having worked with private sectors and public sectors, it's really easy to name the differences. <laughs> but what people don't also identify is that there's also a lot of similarity. And where I found the similarities to come from is that it comes back down to the leader and the leaders that are appointed underneath the grand leader. So in our case, you know, President Biden. And like any other organization, government, and therefore the people that they're responsible for, will go through its ups and downs. There's just no doubt about it. Like any company goes through those ups and downs, any hospital system, any, I mean, during COVID especially, any government will do the same thing. But the big difference, I think, 
in a healthy kind of leadership is to be able to create an environment. And this is through communication. This is through appointing the right leaders that also understand what it means to be a good leader. So that being as transparent as they can acknowledge that, look, we are not, we, there's no possible way we can solve every problem. There's no possible way everyone can be happy out of this. That's just not the way you know companies are run and therefore governments can be run either. But there are things that we as an organization or as this government believe in. And if you realize like you, if you live in America, you're here for a reason. These are the reasons why, you know, based on our history, based on our declaration of independence, so on and so forth. But I think what we need now more than ever is this sense of going back to the why, going back to what does it mean to be an American? And those, I'm big on values. What we do with delivering happiness is big on values and going back to be able to identify those values again, but make it more current. It's like, what do those values mean now? Because if you look back and think about all these things that happened during the election, there were people that were living on the same street, had most opposite political views, but, but the, when they did not know that, they were neighbors. And why were they neighbors? Why did they take care of each other? Why did they seem like, hey, I'll take care of your kids, you take care of mine? Why was it such a tight bond in that community? It's because they shared the same value and they didn't focus on what was dividing them, which is really easy to do these days. They were focusing on what actually unites them. How do you bring these communities and therefore this whole country together by highlighting and spotlighting what actually unites us to be in America so that we can actually do and trying to, you know, harness this collective energy that there is going to be chaos. Things are going to be even crappier one day. We don't know. Maybe another pandemic might hit. We just don't know. But if you can rally effectively and not just have it lip service, but do it in a way that leadership at all different levels have a similar way of creating a space, listening attentively, not doing everything that's told to do just because they want to get reelected. I know that's a tall task, but being able to create what's most important in, I think, today's society is like true community type relationships and bonds, knowing that we're going for the same goal. And that can't happen at a macro level because not everyone's going to be happy. There's just no way and not all needs are going to be satisfied, but at least you can empower and create environments where people can feel they can bond together, put aside their differences because they know they have a common goal and highlight those things so that people can be inspired by it, but actually get the tools and resources to actually do it too. Great comments, recommendations and your thoughts on the country level, both current and Jen. Karan, moving closer home, I would love to ask you a very pertinent question. India is ranked 136 out of 146 nations yeah. in the world happiness ranking. Yeah. How do you think we as a country can derive inspiration from your work and deliver key messages to our policy makers in delivering happiness to the masses. Sure. I know the ranking is a bit skewed given the methodology of the way this ranking has been calculated, but I would love to get your thoughts and see how we can take this thing forward. Sure, KK. I think you said the right thing in your question that the methodology itself is questionable because otherwise what can explain third happiest country is Switzerland and it's the it's a suicide capital of, of Europe, right? Why have people want to die in a happy country? <laughs> you know, I, I know you have been working with the rural people and I am traveling and even currently I'm traveling to rural India. And if you go there and look at the faces, you know, just, just look at the faces and tell me, do you think they're they are unhappy and at least are they as unhappy as somebody in Iraq or in Pakistan or in, in Sri Lanka right now for that matter? Yeah, 
we are actually we are we, they say we are behind that so it's like 1000 people sample size of a 1.3 billion people in this country and you tell me we are the unhappy it's as good as we are the land of snake charmers it's as good as that so anyways right. let's not go there but yeah, i think yes your point is right that we are living in a time where anxieties and the fears and the uncertainties are rising so there's definitely that we something we need to discuss that it's not about how much we are laughing and smiling and dancing because this is a culture we we are come from the land of of natrajan which has given the dance to the world right so we come from that land of rasa sadhana where all the nine emotions are celebrated in the nine days you have navratri where every emotion is celebrated every night so when we talk about happiness our whole idea of happiness is that you embrace every emotion that you have if you are laughing so normally i give an example i say the festival holi is a very beautiful festival because it's always you see a picture of radha and krishna throwing colors at radha i say you always look at like radha never says that oh don't put red color only put yellow color on me or don't put the black color she's okay with all the colors so i'm saying life is throwing all the colors at us but if we become choosy oh i just want all only happy moments only i don't want something which gives me me some kind of uh, unhappiness or sadness or something then it's very it's a very selective way of living our life so one of the very important thing that as individuals what we can do is we can learn to embrace everything and learn to use it as an opportunity for our growth i'm sure i mean a lot of people who have achieved certain success and growth in their life they have always accepted what has come in their way they have not been in denial or not been in kind of fighting with or not had a resistance with those things you have to first embrace and then only you can do now at the government level what you can do see one important thing that we should first of all have our own measurement of happiness for a country level we should make this as a policy that how what we do as a government is impacting people's life and how they are receiving it if when we talk about happiness in the go- government level first of all there in the in the organization or in the retail we talk about client experience so can we look at citizens experience when you are in living in a city where already there's so much of traffic jam and when this cars of the vips are passing what is the experience people are having in this if a, if as a minister or as a government you just start asking this when you are the road is good and in the morning time they are constructing the roads they doing the repair work can it be done in the night how it can be done in the night when i see with my action how my people will how their experience will look like so i think that is also one of the important thing that as a government that's a starting point then when you are making policies you are making plans you should look at the emotional experience of people if people are already in a state of panic maybe at a time like this certain government policies can be the messages of the government can be changed i gave you an example we we were working with one of the state government i'll not name the state they were planning to start a happiness department and they said okay how do we begin this whole idea we said first of all right now they they wanted to work with the traffic police to start a happiness campaign i said every time i follow rules right nobody comes and appreciate me but at once by mistake i break a rule i get fined so which is a, and of course as a society you need to have fine but what if once in a month or maybe once in a quarter you teach you tell the, the traffic policeman to give a flower to the people who are standing on the signal before the the line i mean they're not crossing the line you go and give them the flower yeah just like that you know these little things if we can do before we go into that policy making you know making at at a gross national happiness and all of those big concept at least at a small level each and every government can you know officials can start working on these ideas so i think let's do take a small step 
before we talking about the big things like in our country at least well put karan i think the message is very clear let's start it at the grassroots and then build it forward yeah i wanted to talk about your dubai experience because i lived there and worked there for a couple of years and it's a melting pot of different culture races religion and still very harmonious as a place and very prosperous uh, how did you conceive of a ministry i am told only there is another ministry in ministry of happiness in bhutan mm-hmm. so they were the first to actually think about happiness and bring this whole thing into a governance structure how did you work with this concept with the sheikh tum and and his ministry there yeah so it's a funny story so bhutan is actually different because they're most known for their gross national happiness index that they started as a way to measure you know measure their society in a way of progress versus the traditional means so dubai was a little bit different though they didn't really come across it that way they <laughs> funny enough of all places i met the representatives from their government in wisconsin <laughs> so i was speaking at some conference in wisconsin and this is before they decided to prioritize happiness before they announced it to the world essentially before the minister of happiness was even created and so they saw my talk approached me after and asked if I wanted to talk some more and that's kind of how it all started i i want to say that was probably 2014 around there so this was a really exciting time because they were just trying to understand what happiness might mean in a government type of society and structure in society and i think that one of the ba- major and this goes back to leadership is because the sheikh was committed and he's written so many books and poems and like me he's a pretty prolific guy if you look at his body of work and his one of his fundamental beliefs as a government is to take care of their people through giving them happiness or, or giving their environment and providing the environment to make them happy so that's where the journey begins so we started focusing and working directly with the PMO so the prime minister's office and working with the government body that really was responsible for all the other government bodies to focus on their core values to help define their own purpose and that's where we started and so eventually by creating that foundation for them and they created this really really i would say layered organization and framework of how they define happiness so it just actually went beyond what we talk about of progress you know because for society of course it has to go into other things like health you know what does that mean in society and how do you define that for them so that's where it started and they kind of took it to a different direction i think now they're expanding into not just happiness but really overall well-being but at least what they tried to do was provide a framework as to how every single citizen can learn what it means to increase their own personal happiness and that was all based on the scientific levers that i talked about at the beginning of this podcast karan do you want to add something over there since you were pointing your finger yeah, some yeah so i don't want to add what jen said but i would like to highlight on the current realities of the whole thing that's happening around happiness here you know now the when the, the initiative and the ministry was announced it was announced with the base and the structure of actually building sustainable happiness for people but somehow it became more of a customer service if you are you know as a customer service you think your your duty is to provide happiness to to the client so now the in the current scenario if you go to especially dubai and you talk about happiness nobody wants to 
hear the word, especially in the corporate space. They say you call it anything else, but not happiness, because the biggest problem with the word happiness is it's very misunderstood by people. You know, everybody has a different meaning of the word happiness, and it just got lost. The whole work got lost by you know people understanding of happiness, because if a, if a government announces a ministry of happiness, people think, oh, now it's not my responsibility; it's my government's responsibility to make me happy. Well, that's a very hopeless journey. Let me tell you, even as a person, if you think you can make somebody happy, that's a very hopeless journey. You can only create environment where other can blossom and feel happy, but you cannot make other person happy. I I choose to be unhappy, no matter how hard you try. You're not going to succeed, right? So I think this is why the important thing here is that this is a time when people need to understand that it's not a time of head. It's also a time of heart. But when you say it's a time of heart, people say, ah, it's time of heart. So you know, head is not important. So that's where the whole problem starts. Head is all about data. Heart is all about stories. If you don't bring data and stories together, it's not going to work. Head mm. is all about understanding. Heart is all about experience. If you don't bring understanding and experience together, it's not going to work. See, I tell you, my biggest challenge in this space from the last about ten years, I'm working and we worked with about half a million people. I trained about two thousand and five hundred happiness coaches. I tell you, the biggest challenge that I face in this space, I think the biggest challenge is that people somehow feel that when they are talking about happiness, it's all about Laughing, dancing, and smiling. So I know. I mean, Jen agrees to it that she mentioned. Yeah, just and that's how you know our HR who feels that that's their domain of delivering things yes, on behalf of the CEO or the board seems to believe in you know, let's do an offsite, let's do this, let's do that, and that's very short-lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that's why everybody has understood that you know it's not going to work because now I have enough money and resources and friends to go out and have party on my own. Why do I need Need my company to do it, where everyone is looking at me in a judgmental way that how I'm dancing, how I'm drinking, what I'm doing. I can do that outside. So that that's that's what is misunderstood. That most of the time when you go to companies, you talk about happiness, they think this is what it is, and they want don't want non-serious people. And this that's the biggest biggest the challenge which most of the leaders feel. They say no, no, I don't want people coming and dancing on the floor. No, the <laughs> idea is that if you look at it, when you're happy, your body expands. You see how your body expands when you're happy, but you also see, you know, you interact with more people. Even with a stranger, you're okay to interact with them. You just say hello to them. You just say interact with the strangers, even if you don't know them. You take more projects. You do more things because you're happy. Why we care about happiness is because happiness make you expand the scope of your life. But if you look at unhappiness, it's all about shrinking. You shrink. You want to do lesser things. You want to talk to lesser people. In fact, you want to go to your own shell. You don't want to do anything, right? So it's you don't want to experiment anything new. So when you are happy, it just expands the scope of your work. And you know, for leaders, this is very important to understand that when we talking about happiness, it's all about expanding what we are doing because that's the very basic nature of life. Life is all about expanding. If we don't expand with life, we will suffer because life will keep on expanding. It will put us into experiences, and and we are not okay with those experiences. We will we don't show willingness. We will suffer. So that's the whole idea. Of when we are talking about happiness now, when you are talking about the government level, whether it's Dubai or anything, it's all about expanding. Now, it's not just about you know, like you talked about the US as a country. What more you can expand materialistically there? It's already all the resources, the luxuries, and the comforts, and everything is there. What more you want? Now, the idea is that internally, if people that intrinsic happiness, which Jen was talking about initially, now this is the time when government and and the corporates need to address this in. intrinsic happiness of people not just the extrinsic happiness so this clear cut demarcation in this and in their understanding is very very important when i am making this plan making this policy setting
setting up this whole committee on thinking about happiness am i talking about extra extrinsic happiness or am i working on the intrinsic happiness of people yeah i mean and i think that what you're saying is very it goes back to it is a leader's role to actually define it that way because it's all i mean being in the space for so long of course the natural tendency is to associate it with those extrinsic things like the parties like rainbows and unicorns like happy hours or whatever but, or, or more pay or whatever that is that's still extrinsic but it's upon us as leaders at all levels to really explain what we mean by happiness and to take it even further that's the reason why i called the book beyond happiness going from delivering happiness to beyond happiness for a reason and you're saying it in terms of expansion and i'm putting and i'm using a similar site i think if i hear you right understanding you right i'm using the term growth growth and development as yeah. that's why it's the greenhouse metaphor is greenhouse metaphor that we want to grow others we want to grow other greenhouses but sometimes we forget to how ha- forget to nurture our own greenhouse first yeah. it's the whole when we hear in the airplanes put on your oxygen mask first maybe we've forgotten it because we're not flying as much anymore i don't know but the reminder is that we need to make sure we're like, as we want to try and grow ourselves our businesses or our families etc if we forget about our own greenhouse then that's when we see the unhappiness come in and to take it again to the level of why i called it beyond happiness just to kind of grow a uh, build upon your points is that it's not just about those highs it's also about our lows and it's also understanding not just our strengths but also our shadows things that we might have pushed away swept under the rug things that happen in our lives that we say oh we don't need to try and address that because i'm not a, i don't need to or it's just like something in my life i don't want to try and understand because i don't need it but those things that we suppress are actually in the way of us actually growing in the ways that we're talking about so that's why i believe in this more holistic not just happiness not just highs but also lows to live a more fulfilling life because we can embrace those things that are sometimes we don't want to think about but if we yeah. can have a more holistic view on it then we show up and this is the big thing authentically yeah. as our true self and that's one of like back in the day of philosophical times one of one of the descriptions of happiness or definitions is not just also having a sense of progress and purpose it's being your inherent self your disposition as you were born in and therefore that one that you want to grow and that's why i think we are right now with society especially after covid and going through all these things people want to be who they really are and what they can grow to be yeah Let's shift the gears on having a new movie called avatar and it's on it's opening up something called pandora on a planet called pandora and we have also got mark zuckerberg saying okay i have got metaverse you if you are unhappy with your physical world come welcome to my virtual world and be happy and uh, people are actually buying into this metaphysical and physical stuff which can give them happiness is it true because the character in even in the avatar movie is unhappy with his health and his physique but he becomes something very different in at pandora and he wants to actually keep on going there do you think technology disruptions like this could actually change the whole psychology of happiness <laughs> <laughs> if you because if you, 10 no. trillion dollars as per report is being betted or are going is going to be the size of this metaverse where people are going to be happy and people are going to spend people are going to buy i don't know what they're going to buy all very virtually people are going to buy and people are going to be happy that's the promise given by mark zuckerberg <laughs> 
I don't know his detailed strategy or his plans to execute, but I would do. I, when you bring up Avatar as a movie, I immediately think about Matrix because it's kind of like, are you going to take the red pill or are you going to take the blue pill? Like, which reality? You have a point there as well. Mm. So I think that's still very much relevant if not more, as these metaverses or whatever. Let me just different kind of technologies, AI, VR again. I, this is why I'm such a big believer in if, if we do not know ourselves, if we cannot ground ourselves in everything that means, anything that means everything to us as an individual, again, purpose and values, but basically our intrinsic needs of what can bring fulfillment in a meaningful way, then yeah, of course, metaverse or the other pill will affect us in our lives. But I think that's why now more than ever, people are, you know, great resignation is a great example. Something's off and people are trying to understand why. And if they're going to get led by technology instead of tethering themselves and letting technology be tools to enhance their life, enhance their happiness, then of course there's that possibility that things would go wayward in that way. But if we remember what technology is here for, for us <laughs> to help our lives and to help our fulfillment and happiness and the people we love, then, you know, that's free will. And that's the, the pill that we need to decide to take. See, I think uh, if this is not about distracting ourselves from this negative emotion, so-called negative emotion, and just be in the space so that I just feel high all the time, well, it's not going to work because as Jen rightly said, this is feeling low sometimes is also a part of your growth. It's not just always feeling high because if you know, I'm sure KK, you know that in India dies in, in a family, you know, there's a 13 days of grief period. Now in these 13 days of grief period, you're not supposed to even have anything that gives you pleasure. Like you would sleep on the floor, you don't eat food which has salt in it. You do everything so simple that for the next 13 days, you just be in that grief because grief is an emotion that need to complete its cycle. If you do not let it feel complete the cycle, the grief will show up in different ways. So we have this whole idea of this whole concept of rasa sadhana, which is a science of emotions, we would say, which says that if you that if the cycle of sadness is completed, only then it becomes compassion and then it becomes peace and then joy, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people don't want to be there in that space where they're feeling unhappy. Okay, if I'm feeling unhappy, what do I do? I st let me watch something on the TV. Let me get onto my phone. Let me do. Now what they will do, they will go onto the metaverse and explore something more. Which And when they come back to the world, the real world, they have to still deal with their own emotions and their own realities of life. And if they don't do that, it's going to be even more difficult because in India, we have a saying says that those who can sing, dance, laugh and cry without shame and hesitation are the one who purify this universe. Now, the universe is not talked about. It's, it's not the extrinsic universe out there. It's an universe in here, our own universe, in our understanding, our reality, our thoughts, our emotions, our ideas, our beliefs, our values create our own universe. So, you know, so if we don't give complete validation and have embrace how we feel or what's happening in my life and try to run away from it life will bring me back to the same reality that i am in and it will make me face that reality but the by the time it the time has gone it has become a little more harsher and I've, I've lost my ability to deal with it then then it will become even more difficult i love that you bring that up <laughs> i really do because you're bringing up examples and your traditions in india but the reality is like these kind of traditions and rituals have gone you know happen around the world historically 
through through our through the since our existence as human beings and what has been lost and not just because of technology is also like through like even with the industrial age that that was a different sense of like where those kind of rituals were lost and here we are now where I think because of these life and death situations that make us feel uncomfortable we don't really have the necessary tools or even understanding because it's not really talked about as much or taught as much as to where these emotions and feelings and whether it's about grief or anxiety or stress, they don't really know where to go anymore. So that's, a, you know, but on the on the flip side of that silver lining, that's why I think we are seeing more mindfulness, seeing more meditation, seeing more self-love, self-care, whatever you want to call it. It's that door that's opening in people's minds because let's face it, even though it's been a grueling couple of years, we've had the luxury of time. We've had the luxury of time to actually sit in literally our homes and think about what's really most meaningful. So I think part of this is a part of our work is really expanding us and growing us in these directions where in some ways we got to go back to the roots of where not even our own senses of like issues or sadnesses or traumas, this goes ancestrally throughout our lineage and is within us. As, um, as individuals and within our communities. So that's why I'm really excited that people are recognizing that this is not woo-woo stuff anymore. Uh, this is actually about nurturing your own greenhouse so that you can actually be a better person, grow into a more whole human being authentically, and therefore do all the things that you want to do in a more meaningful way. Yeah. So uh, Jen, you talked about the mindfulness and meditation. The interesting part is that Daniel Goleman, who's known as the, the father of this emotional intelligence and everything, you know, the first book written by him was The Meditative Mind. He mm. didn't just come out of the, the lab thinking about the emotion and they, he came up with the emotion. No, it's it has not happened in the lab. It mm. has happened when he started studying people who were in the deep level of meditation. How emotions work inside of you and now when we going back to the basics we are going to the meditation it's not just a good thing to have that's a very very basic necessity in today's time when your emotions and your energies are all over the place mm. you know inside it's creating chaos and confusion and leading you to finding distractions whether it's metaverse or whatever we call it in the future but the whole idea is if you don't know how to keep your mind at a little peace whenever mm. you not as an end goal because people think happiness and peace are the end goal. No, right now we're having this conversation. If we are not in a state of joy and peace right now, we can't even enjoy this conversation. Forget about doing bigger things in life. Mm -hmm. So that's a prerequisite now. And as Jen very rightly said, this is for the first time in the history of humanity, as the humanity that we know, people had the time to sit back and reflect, why am I doing what I'm doing? They never got this chance. And all of them together, you know, like billions of people across the globe sitting together. This is also collective consciousness spreading a message that okay this is it this nonsense is enough now going to office getting married having kids and then dying at one day that's not it that's not what life is this has made people question and great resignation is not a surprise what is, this is a result of when you sit back and start reflecting why i'm doing and you know, person sitting in mumbai or in new york thinking that why am i wasting two hours three hours every day in driving going to work earning money which I can I'm going to use in the party in the night and then at the end of the month again being broke and then restart the cycle next month again yeah I uh... have a very counter view to this whole the great resignation hmm. this two year under lockdown was a big vacuum kids they did not study employees not physically there at work maybe mentally executing the work but not physically interacting to work and what I'm seeing now 
as the bubble is bursting, people are coming out of their bubble. I'm finding our kids, I mean, as parents, uh, I'm finding kids actually struggling because they have actually skipped the whole rigor of two years of education under lockdown, being virtual. And that is what I was trying to say, this whole virtual world and this creation of metaverse is actually getting people to shirk away the way they would have lived a normal life and that is what is the the reality that's hitting back now and then you're seeing these people wanting to resign people wanting something different blah 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 so in a way i was also trying to talk about the metaverse as something which is so virtual that people are actually feeling that that's the reality as well and they want to probably go into that reality. It's not there at this point in time, even in the new normal. What are your views about it? Well, I think that, and, and just to make sure it's coming out, coming out clear, I, I'm not saying people aren't struggling. I actually fully believe that people are struggling. And in different, whatever you want to call it, with depression rates, with suicide rates, with Adam Grant calls, well, it wasn't his word, but it's a sociology and 20 years ago that came up with the term languishing. In, different levels across the world it has gone through this and still a lot of us are still in those modes of psychological imbalance and so yeah of course to be reactive to these things because we've never been in this situation before so of course if we don't have a set of someone that can actually help guide us or the wherewithal within us to do it for ourselves. That's why community is such an important part of relationships is so important more than ever right now. Then, then of course we go to the natural tendency to try and numb ourselves, no matter what that might be, metaverse, you know, addictions, anything to get us away from this unknown sense of chaos and knowing that it can get more chaotic. But yeah, I mean, I think it, that those kind of outlets will only increase. Like the more we have of technology and innovation and it's just like, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't, couldn't imagine what was going on to be going on now. You know, like when <laughs> this, 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 the whole thing about how the telephone took 50 years to impact, I think 75 million people and Pokemon Go took 19 days to impact the same number of people. And we won't even, can't even predict what will happen in the next few years of that scale and impact of change. So yeah. I just think that to be able to be conscious about it and to be present in acknowledging that we don't know and we cannot control, but to be able to let that go, let go of what we cannot control and adapt and embrace of what and control what we can. I think that's a big part of where we live in this, what I call the adaptive age. Um, people thought that it was about the strongest that survived, but that wasn't actually what he said. What he said is the it's not the smartest or the strongest that survives, it's actually those that are most adaptable to change. So I think that's what we're living in right now. We can learn from what you know animals do in the wild and what redwoods do to survive f fires and you know all this climate change and all that. And I think we can learn a lot from how they've been able to adapt through the years and how therefore we as humans can take uh, make the most of what's available to us on the positive side and not necessarily try and dwell on the negative things that are happening all the time. I think the biggest example is the conversation we are having right now. 10 years back, you know, she's sitting in US, I'm sitting in different city, you're sitting in different city. We're mm -hmm. taking advantage of the technology and you, I think this would have not have been possible a few years back. Now, somebody from the previous generation come and see what we are having this conversation like them. This may not be the real connection. The real connection is physically sitting and meeting, hugging each other can be a real physical connection but now if you live in a world right now we accepted 
we have adapted ourselves as this so i think metaverse is another adaptation of human being but the only challenge with this which i see is if it's coming because it's a need and i take it then it's beautiful but if i take because my current life is not good what i'm doing is not right i want to live somebody else life there's something wrong with me then i go to metaverse this will lead to even more dissatisfaction and frustration in people because this is how it's it's being projected in many many like you talking about the avatars people are taking avatars and they starting those games when i'm not happy with my life i can live your life as well i can live a life of a celebrity in in my virtual world i can create my own reality now if that is so that will create more frustration to people because when they come back to this world ah they will think that oh i don't have so i don't want to be in this world i want to be in that virtual world only <laughs> since you talked about the red pill and the blue pill from matrix i want to bring up the issue of three pills now which you have written about which you called as the boat the money boat the people boat and the purpose boat mm. i would love to let's call them the three red blue and the green pill what would you recommend the leaders and the politicians who are managing or who are at the top of the world what pill should they take to get into the matrix <laughs> i love how you're writing the storyline for the next sequel <laughs> <laughs> Even though they said they would not have another one, you never know with Hollywood. They always, they always retract on those statements. Final, final, final one. Um, so when I wrote about that, I it's a big trade-off. The actor in Matrix, he had to think: should he take the red or the blue? And here, even our leaders are very scared of taking which pill to lead their organizations or lead their country ahead in the current scenario. So, I would love to get your take on this. On the which pill to take? I think <clears throat> this the Matrix example or the kind of like the analogy you're putting into these pills are a bit different. From For me, because Matrix is reality or non-reality, right? You're gonna be in the Matrix, or you're gonna be, or you're just gonna keep on living your reality. But these pills that we're talking about, the profit, the purpose, the people, they all can be in one reality. So it's not binary to me. My point about writing about per, like which boat are we going to take is that they can coexist, and the reason why I believe that is because they can—they're all interlinked in the sense that if there's a strong—I mean, you know—we all know what it takes for a company to make profits. I mean, of course, it's been really hard, especially in the last couple of years with the amount of the adaptation and innovation we had to go through. But you know, that formula is more or less understood. But what's not as understood is how these things can coexist if you see it that way. If you see the profits that are linked by investing in people, therefore investing in people, you're investing in your company, and you can see that those two levers actually affect each other positively, and then. Knowing at the same time, so with that people and you have profits, ha- leveraging each other, having that sense of purpose is actually not only—it's not a nice to have these days. It's actually tied into it all because with the Great Resignation or with Gen Z and with the next—you know—and I, I believe in the sense that generations are all fundamentally—they have their differences, but in the same, they do want the same thing. But if you reframe it, and that's why I want to write in the book and the how, so that you can see that they all are aligned. And can be aligned 
And so if you pull one lever, all the other levers can also go up. So it's not one pill or the other. It seems like you're popping three pills at the same time, knowing that if you can create the system, and this is really big because this is systemic change in your organization or your government or your hospital system, whatever it is, create the system that actually nurtures the growth of each of these things because you see how they're so interrelated and they're needed by this future of work mentality that's happening right now um the old school systems are just going to become obsolete and we're seeing that we you know all the, the companies that had to shut their doors that we thought there would be lifers household names that are no longer there so that's my big thing reframe it in a way maybe popping the pills thing isn't a great analogy because we I don't want people to be taking pills because this is can and can be the reality of what we've been seeing with companies that do see those three p's purpose people and profits as one in the whole in the system I would like to build on this. I think Jen very rightly said that it's not about this or that. This is a world of this and that where these systems can coexist because an organization cannot run without profit. If you don't have profit, how long are you going to run and how long are you going to care for the people? Even if you care for the people, you can't do anything about that because you're not profitable. In India, we say that, you know, the dharma of a business is to make profit. But the perp the leader is all about purpose. People need purpose. Purpose is for the people. Profit is for the company. So that is why these system can very well coexist because these are not separate systems. These are part of the same, the, the mechanism. And profits is not necessary just for the company too. Profits, if done well, is like people realizing that's for them too. And it yeah. can come so many different forms. And it's that's not about pay all the time either. It's about creating an environment for meaningful life for them. If you want to be attracting the right people, I mean, this competitive market uh, in the states here, we've had the most number of people, 4.5 million people quit last month. At the same time, there's more job openings than ever. And this is ever in terms of the, when they started capturing this data 20 years ago. So that's that means something, that people are standing up for whatever reason, flexibility, more pay, more purpose, and there's more opportunity in some ways if you want to, if you choose to see it that way. And that's why it's like when those companies that can create the differentiator of saying, we're not just here for you to, we'll give you more money, we'll throw an extrinsic stuff at you. We're here for you as a human being. That's where you see the sustainable long-term thinking that I think a lot of companies out there, like Microsoft's been doing a good job of investing and reskilling people and not thinking about the negative of uh, future of work and technology, but spending millions of dollars. Google, same thing, and reskilling their people so that they can be a part of it, be a part of the change and be a part of their growth for everyone. Jen, last question. I'm afraid we are running out of time. So it was happiness, delivering happiness. Now it's beyond happiness. What's next in your sequel? <laughs> well, it seems like you're really good at creating sequels for storylines because you created one from Matrix with three pills. Beyond happiness to me, it's like, so this evolution from delivering it to beyond and when I'm talking about being whole and authentic, I think the most natural part and place I want to be in evolving this is and I know this is a big word to some people. It's just like, what are you talking about? But the tie into humanity. And again, it's part of that coexistence. It's not just happiness. It's happiness and what? And I think we are all in a place that we've seen pretty dark times. Some of us the darkest we've ever seen. But we've also seen a lot of light. And 
in those extreme situations as individuals, we see the real selves come up as companies. We see the real DNA of a company come out. And I know that by having gone through these very extreme times, that sense of humanity beyond what we see in social media and in the news because of what negative we see, there's been a lot of that. And I think that needs to be showcased and highlighted and rewarded and recognized in a way that it becomes a part of who we are and what we do at work and therefore life. So happiness and humanity, I believe, is where the future your next sequel is going to your next title of your book. <laughs> uh, Great. Yeah. Uh, it's been pleasure talking to both of you. I really appreciate giving this time and current so early in the morning for you and me, but was it's worthy waking up early in the morning and talking about happiness and going beyond happiness and uh, virtual happiness as well. I wish uh, when Metaverse goes mainstream in this whole universe that we live in at this point in time, but I wish uh, both of you all the very best and look forward to hosting you when you are in India as well, Jen and Karan. Let's catch up. Okay. Thanks so much for being part of Quote Unquote with KK and talking about a subject which is so much uh, required for this world. Thank you. Thank you, Karan, for your insights. I loved hearing them and KK, thanks for the invite. I loved your uh, very thoughtful questions. Thank Appreciate you, KK. It. it was lovely talking to you and thank you so much, Jen, speaking to you after a long time. <laughs> Yes. Bye-bye. <laughs>